0: Before we look at God's Word tonight, I'd like to ask for the ushers to gather once more. Um, As they gather, I'd like to just make mention, uh, over this past summer, uh, we have made mention I think a few months ago uh, that Brother David Arthur has and will be serving as our summer intern. Well, this is his last Sunday with us. He's heading back to school Tuesday uh, of this week and gonna be starting another semester that down at Pensacola as he uh, trains and gets equipped for full-time ministry and uh, during the time that we've seen him over the course of the summer he's preached Sunday morning Sunday evening services and not even just here uh, but uh, some pastors have called and asked if we'd be willing to uh, let him go and preach at other uh, other churches and stand behind different pulpits and so he's had uh, some hopefully good experiences as um, he's been able to share God's word with us and a number of other um, individuals and congregations. Uh, but we're excited for how the Lord has been working in his life and for the call that has placed on his life and how he's answering that call. And we'd like to uh, give a special love offering to him uh, here today. So, men, as you come forward, uh, as the Lord leads. We just encourage you to give if there is something that you can do and just be a blessing to Him. As uh, another young man prepares for the ministry, and if there's something that we need more of, it is uh, more more men to be in, in ministry, more men to uh, be following the call that God has given, and and being a light into this world. There is increasing evil and wickedness that we see all around us, and there is more need now than ever for the gospel to go forth. And if we can have one more gospel preacher out there, we'll be even more blessed. So let's go ahead and just have a word of prayer, and then the gentleman will come and take up a love offering for Brother David Arthur. Heavenly Father, thank you for, Lord, the the work that you've been doing through this ministry. We thank you, Lord, for the calling that you have placed on, on David's life, Lord, and we know that Lord, there are big plans that you have for him, and as he humbles himself to be an instrument in your hands, Lord, we trust that you would use him in such a wonderful way. And I pray that as we give here this morning, Lord, that we're giving out of a desire to see your word go forth. And, Lord, we know that you're going to equip those who you have called. And I just pray, Lord, that we can be a little blessing as he prepares, Lord, to head back to To school and to start another semester as he tries to learn more about you and to, Lord, hone some more of the skills that you have equipped him with. May we be a blessing to him this morning, Lord, as we give unto one of your servants. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to God's Word. I'd ask that you would turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 29 through verse 37, 2 Kings 4, 29 to 37, and a sermon that I've titled Trusting in God to do the impossible. Trusting in God to do the impossible second kings chapter four in a moment we'll read uh, these verses beginning at verse number 29 when we were last looking at this passage last week we mostly focused on the faith of the shunammite woman whose son had just died and we said that based on on what we're seeing here as far as the timetable is concerned her son was somewhere around seven years old eight years old and as we saw last week, suddenly died without any warning. The boy was completely fine that morning, but by noon he had died. The woman had laid her son on the bed of the prophet Elisha in the chamber that they had built for him in their home, and she went on her way to find the prophet. And even though her son had died, she knew that God could restore her son to life. Her faith was being tested throughout this entire time, over and over. And every time, we see that she continued to trust in the ability of God to do the impossible. This woman was able to look past the gloomy circumstances to an expected outcome that she was hoping for, and she would not be disappointed. We haven't yet discussed Elisha's seventh miracle yet, but we'll get to it this morning. We've seen the mystery of the miracle. If you can remember the points that we looked at last week, we started by looking at the mystery of the miracle in that there was no lead up to the events that took place in the previous passage that we looked at, which was the boy's death. There was nothing that really led up to it other than the boy one morning as he was out in the field looking at and watching what his father was doing complained of a headache. There was no sickness that he had been dealing with, just complaining with a headache. And a few hours later, he died. God had shown kindness to this woman in blessing her with a son simply for the fact that she showed hospitality to the prophet Elisha. And all of a sudden, it appeared that God was dealing unkindly with this woman by allowing her son to die. It seemed as if that initial miracle of having a son in the first place seven, eight years ago had all been undone as the child was now just snatched away from his mother. And then we also saw the expectation of the miracle. Every reaction of the mother that we saw in the previous passage was in complete expectation that God would restore her child to life. It was as if this woman understood that everything she was dealing with was all a trial of her faith, and her confidence in God was allowing her to triumph over every test. And as we continue... The narrative here this morning, we're going to be looking at point number four, which is the means of the miracle. So it's a continuation from where we left off last week. We'll look at point number four, the means of the miracle. And look with me at verse number 29 here in 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings 4 verse 29. Then he said to Gehazi, gird up thy loins, and take my staff in thine hand, and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. And if any salute thee, answer him not again, and lay my staff upon the face of the child. So remember what has happened. So the woman at this point, she has run to go meet the prophet Elisha. Her son has died in her arms, and she has laid his body upon the bed of the prophet Elisha, who had a chamber that they had built in her home, and she runs to go find Elisha, because he's not anywhere in town, and she goes all the way to Mount Carmel, where he is, and Elisha meets her by sending Gehazi, his servant, to go in to meet her. And then this is what, he, what, what happens here. Verse 29 says that when Elisha hears what's going on, he calls for his servant to go with haste to the place where the boy is and to lay his staff upon the face of the child. And many theologians have struggled to understand why the prophet Elisha didn't go himself, why he sent the servant Gehazi, rather than jumping up and running to see the boy for himself. And some suggest that Elisha was trying to teach Gehazi a much-needed lesson here. Others suggest that just as Elisha used the mantle of Elijah to part the waters of the Jordan River, and even, uh, and, and even how he uh, brought the miracle as far as the alliance of kings to dig ditches, if you can remember that, when the three kings came to him and said, we're going to die out here without any water, he used them to dig ditches to prepare for the water. And even if you can remember back to when he met the first widow who, who was dealing with a creditor who wanted to take her two sons, he told them to go and to gather as many vessels as, for oil as possible. Many people think that here he's using another instrument to bring about a miracle. And this is the instrument of his servant Gehazi. The only problem we see is that the boy wouldn't end up being restored after Gehazi's visit. In all the other previous examples, a miracle was seen. When they dug the ditches, the water came. When the woman and her sons went and gathered all the vessels, they were able to use it all and pour the oil into every single vessel that they had. In every instance, we saw the miracle. So it begs the question, what was the difference about this specific occasion? Now, Some suggest that God was testing the faith of the Shunammite woman here to see if she thought that the power to heal was more connected with Elisha himself than God who can work through anyone. The child was not restored to life, as we'll see, by the laying on of the staff. But hypothetically, he could have been if the woman would have embraced the confidence in God to do the impossible through anyone and through any means. So some theologians think that that was the idea. And I believe this is partly true. I believe that Elisha instructed Gehazi to go and to not talk to anyone along the way, but to go directly to the boy and lay the staff upon him so that he might not be distracted by anything or anyone. Elisha knew about Gehazi, and so he tells him here in verse 29. He says, go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. If any salute thee, answer him not again. Just go and do what you need to do. And the idea behind this is give yourself wholly to prayer. Give yourself completely to prayer for the accomplishment of such a great miracle. Don't waste your time talking with anyone, even if someone's talking to you. You're a man on a mission, and your mission is one to go and to lay the staff upon this boy. Elisha knew enough about Gehazi to know that He was obviously prone to seek vainglory and praise of men and that he would be sure to tell others of the reason of his journey. And so Elisha was teaching Gehazi a valuable lesson here. And that is why he tells them from the very beginning, If thou meet any man, salute him not. And if any salute thee, answer him not again. In other words, ignore everyone else. Because your mission is not to shake hands, is not to greet, is not to talk to any other person that you're going to come across on your way to see this boy. Your mission is to just go and see this boy and to lay the staff upon him. We are so prone as human beings and even servants of God today to let pride get the best of us, aren't we? Someone asks us to do something that we've never been asked to do before and some of us can't wait to share it with the world. Guess what I've been asked to do? We haven't even done it yet. But guess what I've been asked to do? You're never gonna believe who talked to me and who gave me this mission. Just wait until you hear. Just wait until I tell you who I'm running an errand for. We're prone to do this type of thing, aren't we? We're allowing pride to to get the best of us, and we can't wait. We can't wait to tell others. Being called upon to do certain tasks, for many of us, is viewed as a promotion. And the pride goes straight to our big head as we start thinking of of ourselves as being more important than anyone else. After all, anyone could have been chosen for this task, but it was our name that was called. We must be pretty special, right? Of all the people that could have been chosen, it was me. So there must be something pretty significant, pretty special about me if I was the one that stood out from everyone else to be selected for this. Proverbs 16, verse 18 tells us that pride goeth before destruction and an haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is very dangerous and it is at the heart of nearly every sin. And this is why Elisha told Gehazi, not to talk to a single soul on his way to see the boy. Sometimes we don't start off prideful, but when we see the reaction of others, when they find out what we're doing, pride creeps in and we allow it to get to our head. Wanting to help Gehazi avoid all of this, Elijah tells him from the onset, don't talk to anyone. Don't talk to anyone. Don't even look at them, he says. You have nothing to do with anyone else right now. Right now, you have one mission, one goal, one thing on your to-do list. Talk to everyone else afterwards. Shake hands with them. Do whatever you want afterwards. But right now, you have one thing to do, and that is not to boast about what you've just been called to do. It is not to brag about the fact that you were chosen for this mission. It is to go and to meet this child where he is and to lay the staff upon him. Don't talk to anyone. Don't look at anyone. Just do exactly what you're told. So he tells him, just do it. Gehazi was being tested here as much as this woman. Uh, Elisha didn't send Gehazi to get him to and to send him to fail. He sent him to teach him as well as the woman that the power to work miracles was not connected in any sort of magical way with Elisha himself or even in his staff, but that miracles were works of God brought on only through faith and prayer. And notice what we read in verse number 30. So he's been sent to do this. Notice what it says in verse 30. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. So Elisha may have ordered Gehazi to hurry and go to the boy, but this woman recognized all of this as another test of her faith. She obviously had little faith in Gehazi. And even in just the staff of Elisha, as she was very emphatic with what she said here in verse number 30, she said again, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. If you can remember back to when 2 Kings chapter 2. Elisha and Elijah were together. This is the same response that Elisha gave to Elijah. Every time Elijah told Elisha, you stay here, I'm moving on to the next city. They go to the next city together because Elisha said this, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. They go to the next city. Elijah says, Elisha, you stay behind. He says again, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. Over and over and over again. Elisha responded to Elijah this way. And here, the woman is doing the same. He is... She is doing the same thing that he is doing. She is demonstrating a commitment to the servant of God. This woman was not going to leave unless Elisha was going with her. She was bold, she was persistent, and she would persevere as a result. I don't think that Elisha was unwilling to go. I believe he was testing this woman and her importunity won on this occasion. As she moved the prophet to action. How many of you know what the word importunity means? It appears one time in Scripture. One time. One person knows. Importunity? Okay, you're gonna you're gonna learn I didn't say opportunity. Importunity. I M P O R T U I T U N I T. Why? Don't go by my spelling. Importunity. That's the word. I'm pronouncing it right. Importunity. You're going to learn a new word today. Importunity means persistence to the point of annoyance. Persistence to the point of annoyance. We see this concept several times in Scripture. It's only mentioned once in Scripture. And it's mentioned on the story where Jesus tells about the man who, who goes to sleep and there's a friend who comes and knocks on his door at night and says, I have a traveler coming from a far town. I need some food to pro- provide for him. And the man comes. He says, listen, I put the kids down for bed. I'm going to bed. Come back later. Does the man come back later? Or do we hear this again? You don't understand. I need something now. The man says, don't have time for it. Go away. Go away. You don't understand. I'm really in need of something right now. Not the time for it. Persistence to the point of annoyance. What happens to that friend? Eventually, he gives him what he needs, right? We see this idea over and over again in Scripture. And here we see it with this woman persistence to the point of annoyance, importunity won here this day. She moved the prophet into action, into moving, because it says there again in verse number 30, and the mother of the child said, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And so what does his last few words say in verse number 30? And he arose and followed her. He was testing her faith and her importunity won on this day. This is what we see from the woman as she was unwilling to leave without Elisha. And she makes it very clear to him when she says this. As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. She was not going to settle for anything short of the prophet himself coming to see her son. It's not that she didn't like anyone else, but she knew that there was something different about the prophet Elisha. Remember back to when she first saw him, when he was first passing by her home as he was traveling from Mount Carmel. And she first would go out and to meet him and say, you know, please come on in and have some food. I can see that you've come on a long journey. You're probably tired. You can probably use a meal in you. Come just sit. And, you know, the Bible says that she constrained over and over, constrained him to come on in. But there's something else that we see in verse number nine. Look back at verse number nine of 2 Kings chapter 4. So, verse number eight says, She constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as off he's passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. So, eventually, he gives in. But notice what it says in verse number nine as far as her perception and what she sees different about Elisha. She said unto her husband, in verse number nine of 2 Kings chapter 4, Behold, now I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. She perceived that he was a holy man of God. We're not told how she perceived this. It's, you know, it would have been rather obvious if, if we, you know, if he's walking by reading a Bible every time. But that's not the impression that we get. She perceives this based on something else, and what that is, we don't necessarily know. But there was discernment in her as a believer in God herself, to recognize a fellow believer. There was something that stood out about Elisha from everyone else that she knew, not just that he was a fellow believer, but that he was a holy man of God, she says. So there was something that set him apart, even from his servant Gehazi. And no offense to anyone else, but she wasn't gonna settle for anything short of God's prophet. And notice again how verse 30 ends. It says, and he arose and followed her. He arose and followed her. Now look at what we see in verse 31. For Gehazi, he's already left at this point. And he arrives at the child before the woman and Elisha come on the scene. And notice what it says in verse 31. It says, and Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff upon the face of the child. But there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore, he went again to meet him and told him, saying, the child is not awake. Now, we will discuss Gehazi in greater detail later on, but what we see pretty much from the beginning is an unholy man amid holiness. An unholy man amid holiness. Gehazi's name means valley of vision. Valley of vision, which he would live up to because he's always looking for something more. He is never content with where he is, Or what he has his eyes seem to be looking for something more to enrich his life here on earth and it makes you wonder why Elisha would ever have such a man as his servant and yet in light of Judas being a disciple of Christ we need not be too surprised we see him trying to Pull the mother away. Remember when she first arrived on the scene to see Elisha. Gehazi is there trying to pull the mother away who is basically holding on to the feet of Elisha the prophet, begging and pleading that she come and restore her son to life. Gehazi is the one trying to separate the two. And here we see the absence of prayer unto God leading to empty results. Again, verse 31, it says, Gehazi passed on before them, laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Nothing was happening. He did what he was told, but nothing's happening. There's no prayer to God. There's no seeking God out for help as far as this is concerned. And ultimately, there is no results that are seen. In a little while, we'll see his ultimate demise. But the sad thing is that as a servant of Elisha, the man of God, the holy man of God, one would have thought that Gehazi would have been a good and an honorable man. Unfortunately, what we see is that a holy man of God had an unholy servant. And this was evidently recognized by the woman as she persistently, with importunity, pleaded for Elisha to come and to see her child rather than settling for Gehazi, the unholy servant. And as close as Gehazi was to everything that was good, he was so far away from everything that was pure and lovely. Judas couldn't have been closer to Christ physically, and yet we all know how it ended for him. Think about the miracles that he would have witnessed. Think about the teachings that he heard straight from the mouth of the Savior, and yet he was so far from actually receiving it for himself. The same was true for Gehazi. It's hard to believe how people could so clearly see the truth and yet not believe it for themselves. I remember the very first time we, Ruthie and I, heard Lily's heartbeat on an ultrasound. She's still pregnant, baby's not born, weeks old. We go to an ultrasound appointment and hear the heartbeat. I actually still have a recording for it. If you want to hear it, I can play it for you. I was new to all of this, but I remember hearing it for the first time. Again, Ruthie hadn't been pregnant all that long, but we saw this little peanut on a screen and heard her little heart beating so fast. I remember thinking, this is crazy fast how fast it's beating. It beats a newborn, not even newborn, but a baby's heart beats anywhere from like 130 to 160 beats per minute. It's crazy how fast it goes. I remember thinking at that moment, how could any doctor, how could any nurse, any technician who sees such ultrasounds on a consistent basis ever doubt the existence of an amazing God and also deny the reality of life in the womb? Everyone who sees that, you have to be throwing yourself at the mercy of God and just believing in this incredible God who has done all of this and believing in Him that He sent His Son to die for us. Right? How can you deny that? There, there is nothing that replicates that. Where else do you see life? life formed inside of a human being like that and and visible as well as hearing the audible sound of the beating heart. And yet what we see is people seeing the truth but rejecting all of it as truth. How can people be so close to the truth? So close to it, seeing it on a screen, hearing it all the time and at the same time be so far away. We have people who literally build churches while rejecting and denying the great doctrines of the Christian faith. It seems like an oxymoron. The unfortunate reality is that there are many who are in the right situation, who are even under the right teaching, denying all of it as they seek contentment in the temporal things of this life. And here in this instance, we have a man, Gehazi, who's in the right environment, who's in the best situation that you could be in, under the teaching and the ministry of the holy man of God, Elisha. And yet, in Gehazi, we don't have a picture of a faithful servant of God. We have a picture of, an, of the unavailing efforts of an unregenerate minister and his failures that are not just seen by himself, but also by others. The woman knew that there is something different about Elisha as opposed to his servant. And so when he says, listen, I'm sending my servant to go and take care of this, she says, I don't care who you're sending. If it ain't you... We're not doing this. As thy Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And now look at what we see in verse 32. It says, when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. Now last week, we we really emphasized the strong faith of the woman. But we can't also miss the strong faith of Elisha as well. It almost seems like a foregone conclusion that Elisha would have strong faith, right? I mean, that's what you would expect from a holy man of God. You'd expect him to have strong faith. But his faith was being tested here as well. This was no ordinary request that was made to him. And certainly only a matter that could be handled by the power of God and the intervention of God, and he knew it. Elisha knew that this is not something that he's just going to snap his fingers and take care of. Elisha had no idea what had happened about what had happened to this child until the woman arrived, so he must have been quite shocked at the news when he first found out. he certainly wasn't expecting it, and it must have left him maybe a little confused as well. Even though he was in the dark as to the reason of this tragedy, he, like the woman, refused to accept it as final. He refused to accept it as final. The mother had made it clear that she, was re- re- that she herself was refusing to accept her son's death as final when she laid him on the prophet's bed and went to go find Elisha. But now we see Elish- Elisha's faith in action. Elisha had certainly been faced with desperate situations before, but this was a little different. What's amazing is that even with such a tall order, he continued trusting in God to do the impossible. How often in our own lives do we reach a point where we view a situation or a circumstance as final? How often do we do that? Sometimes our prayers to God are coupled with a timeline or maybe even an ultimatum as to when we need God to act, when we need God to intervene before it's too late. Even if we have other parameters for establishing finality, death is a pretty hard and fast period and end, isn't it? I can honestly say that I have never looked at the death of a person that I was praying for, someone that was sick and approaching death. I never looked at death as something that they could be restored from. As I was preparing for my message here this morning, I got to thinking, why is that? As I'm praying for an individual who's sick. Why have I always looked at death as the finality? Why has it never crossed my mind? That even if this person should cross that threshold. Which in my mind says this is the point of no return. Why have I not had a much bigger view of God which says, even if my mind tells me and logic tells me that this line, once it's passed, cannot be returned. Why don't I have enough faith to believe that even if it goes past that point, God can restore life? Why do we do that? Why do we put limitations in the things that we're praying and asking God to do? Why do we put parameters on these things? Because whether we realize it or not, and I'm using myself as an example as to what not to do, whether we realize it or not, every time we attach a parameter, we're essentially saying, God, here's my need. And in order for you to work, you need to operate within these parameters. Because you can't work outside these parameters is essentially what we're saying. Nothing can be done beyond at this point. Why is that? Now, I will admit, sadly, that I've been guilty of limiting my view of the power of God, insisting that he can only work under certain parameters in a specific window of time. And I'm not suggesting that God would have raised people from life, raised people from the dead that I've been praying for who were sick and died. But attaching a limit to the power of God is not something that I'm proud of and not something that any of us should be proud of. And you might say that things are different now than they were in those days and you know, it's, we're not seeing the same things, but I would say that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who spoke the world into existence, the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who fed over 5,000 people with a few bread and few fish, the same God who walked on water, the same God who raised the dead to life is the same God that you and I are worshiping today. So is there any limitation to what God can do, even if it's not something that we've seen here in 2023 or maybe even 2,000 years? Does God just chalk that one up and say, well, that was an Old Testament version of me? I don't, I don't do those things anymore. I've I put those days behind me. Ask me something else. Just don't ask me to restore anyone back from the dead. Is that the way God works? No. No. God is the same, the Bible says, yesterday, today, and guess what? When else? Forever. 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 So if the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament had no limitations and could even go so far as to return someone from what we refer to as the point of no return, death, why do we attach limitations to what God can do? Why do we do this? Perhaps the reason we don't see as many of the miracles that we read about in the pages of Scripture happening today is because we have even less faith today. None of us would argue with the fact or against the fact that with God all things are possible. We read that on the pages of Scripture. Absolutely, it's true. But the truth is that there is a point of finality with things here on earth where we limit the power of God in our own mind. There is no finality with God. There is no limit with God. I know that once souls are in hell, there is no return then. But there are plenty of other instances throughout life here on earth where we lack faith in the all-sufficiency of God. Maybe there's something that you've been praying for and you just haven't seen it. And maybe it's a person that you've been praying for. Someone that you're trying to witness to, someone that you have been praying would be saved. I'm sure if we asked for a show of hands, we could all say we have all of us, friends, family members, who we know are unsaved. Maybe we've been praying for them on a regular basis. Maybe we told ourselves, you know what? It's like beating a dead horse. I know where it's gonna go. I know where it's gonna end up if I try witnessing to this person. I know that it's gonna fall on deaf ears. And we attach that finality to a person or to something else that we've been praying for, thinking that well, I haven't gotten the answer for it, or God keeps closing a door and closing a door and closing a door. So, okay, God, message received. And maybe God is making it very clear that you know you need to start praying in something else. Or maybe God is testing your faith. And maybe God is waiting for you to demonstrate a little bit of importunity. To see where your faith really is. And that it has no limitations as to what God can do. I think all all of us lack faith in the all-sufficiency of God, and it shows. The moment a person breathes their last breath, we move on, don't we? Or at least we start the process of moving on. Because we've accepted the fact that they're no longer alive. This mother, here in 2 Kings chapter 4 had her child die in her arms, and she refused to accept his death as final. Elisha is told that her son is dead, and he refused to accept his death as final. He didn't try and console a grieving mother by telling her that she should be thankful for the seven or eight years that she had with her son. He didn't calmly try to tell her that there's nothing he can do for her son at this point. He didn't even gently speak to her about the finality of death. He instead went with her to her house to see the boy. And he would pray to God to do the impossible. When was the last time that you trusted in God to do the impossible? When was the last time that you trusted in God to do the impossible? Now, I'm not suggesting that we become unreasonable and start asking God for miracles left and right. But what I am suggesting is that we start viewing God for who he truly is and what he's truly capable of, which the Bible says all things are possible with God. I'm suggesting that when we go to God in prayer, that we start believing that God can work, and we live with the expectation that he's going to work. What sets the faith of this woman and Elisha apart is the belief in the power and the capability of God and the expectation of God to deliver. We'll often pray for God to do something. And you, you can be honest with me. I won't ask for an audible response but just be honest with yourself. We'll often pray for God to do something, whether it's something for us personally, whether it's something for someone else. We'll pray for God to do something, but in the back of our minds, we're not expecting anything to happen. The situation seems kind of too far gone, but we know that we should be praying, and so we'll pray, but we're also telling ourselves in our mind, I'm not really expecting anything to come of this but I know it's my Christian duty to to be praying. Jesus instructed his disciples on how to pray in Mark chapter 11 and verses 22 to 24. And listen to what it says. Mark 11, 22 to 24. It says, have faith in God. That's where it should start. Have faith in God, Jesus says. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass he shall have whatsoever he saith therefore i say unto you what things soever ye desire when ye pray believe that ye receive them and ye shall have them not doubting in our hearts and believing that god can do What we're asking him to do is where prayer is supposed to start and where it's supposed to continue. Believing what you're going to God with, that he can actually do it, and then going on from there with the expectation that he is going to do it. That's where it should go. Now look at what we see in verse number 33. So verse 32, Elisha shows up and sure enough the child is dead. Nothing has happened with the work of Gehazi. Verse 33, He went in therefore, Elisha went in therefore, and shut the door upon them twain, and prayed unto the Lord. You notice something different here between what Elisha did and what Gehazi didn't do? Elisha goes in, he does exactly what he's told. He lays his staff upon the child, nothing happens. What he didn't do is the one thing he should have done. The whole reason why Elisha says, I don't want you talking to anyone. I don't want you distracted. Because what you should be doing, he didn't tell him this, but he told him this. What you should be doing during this time, that it takes you from getting to point A to point B, which is where the the child is. You should be alone with God and Him. That's it. Don't talk to anyone. Don't stop and, and just socialize. You get on your way Focus only on God the entire time. Be praying, be seeking him out. And then go lay the staff upon this child. He doesn't do any of that. Verse 33 again. He went therefore, Elisha to shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. This is what separates the servant of God and those that are just claiming to be. Elisha goes in and sends everyone out of the room so that he's alone to pray over the boy himself. Elisha was not a man who was known for fanfare. He was not a man who was known for drawing attention to himself. So as he prepares to seek the Lord in this most urgent and this most special prayer, he needs absolute silence and privacy with God. The Pharisees, they were known for their outward expressions of religion, where they would pray out in public for everyone to hear and everyone to take notice. And they did this out of a desire to gain recognition, notoriety, and admiration. Jesus instructed in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, he said this as far as prayer is concerned. He says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Seeking only God's help and only God's glory, Elisha sends everyone out of the room, shuts the door behind him, so it's just him and the boy, and he prays unto the Lord. This is where we see the means of the miracle. The unfaltering faith of the woman and the prophet Expressed in prayer unto God. Elisha was acknowledging his own helplessness. Humbly but trustfully presenting his great need before God. Counting upon God's almighty power and goodness to deliver in this most dire situation. And notice fifth. The procedure of the miracle. The procedure of the miracle. Look at verse number 34. And he went up. And lay upon the child, and put his mouth upon his mouth, and his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child, and, and the flesh of the child waxed warm. If you're familiar with the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah, you will see that what Elisha does here is exactly the same as what Elijah did, what God used Elijah to do with the widow's son at Zarephath back in First Kings chapter 17. What we see here is that Elisha fully expected God to restore this boy to life. And that is evidenced by him praying and then stretching himself upon the child. Elisha was putting his soul into this. He's putting his soul into this as he is stretching himself upon the child. Now, our prayer life goes to another level when we really make our prayers specifically for others our own taking their burden, taking their need onto our spirit, and then spreading it before the Lord. That's what Elisha was doing here. How many times have we prayed for others without fully considering what they're going through? Or even if we think about what they're going through, how many of us have prayed for others with the urgency and the earnestness as if we were the ones in those circumstances as opposed to them. A lot of the times, we'll pray for people, but we don't take upon the same burden and desire that they have onto ourselves because they're in the middle of it and we're more of an outsider. And so we'll stay at arm's length and we'll pray. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. But all I'm saying is that your prayer life reaches a much higher level when you can take their burden upon your own self and then stretch it all unto God. Bear it all before Him. This is what Elisha was doing here. He was interceding on behalf of this child as if he was asking for the Lord to bring life back to himself. How many times... Have we prayed for others without doing that? The picture of him stretching himself upon this child was him taking the child's need upon himself. We pray differently when we're in distress as opposed to when we're praying for others that are in distress. Our prayers change when the needs hit closer to home. And Elisha was making sure that his prayer to God here was hitting as close to home as it possibly could. And look at what we read in verse number 35. It says, Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Did you notice what happened here? We're told in verses 33 and 34 that Elisha prayed unto the Lord and stretched himself out upon the child, but Elisha didn't get the full response that he was looking for. If the prayer of Elisha isn't met with an immediate and a complete answer, why would we get discouraged when our prayers aren't being answered right away either? Are there times where we get an answer right away? Absolutely there. Are there also times where God seems to delay in his response? You bet. And it's often in the delays that God is testing our perseverance, our persistence. Maybe even our importunity, requiring us to patiently wait for him. And here God is testing the faith of the prophet. Yes, God has shown him a sign of progress, but the full answer is not yet received. The picture we see is that of Elisha most likely pacing back and forth in prayer over this child after getting the small sign of progress, because it says in verse number 34 at the end, it says, and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Now that's a good start, but it's not there. So he's given a sign of the progress. And he's probably pacing back and forth a little bit, trying to figure out when God is going to deliver but he's praying and he's seeking God to work in a bigger way. And what we see from Elisha is not frustration, it's not discouragement. Rather, he continued to trust in God who is the giver of every good and perfect gift and he stretched himself out upon this child once again. This persistence in prayer is where many of us fail. Many lack importunity in their prayer life. And as a result, we only end up receiving a partial blessing instead of getting the full blessing that God has in store for all of us. And everything Elisha did, he was expressing his complete inability and God's complete sufficiency. You see, sometimes we pray and we see the first part. We see the flesh of the child wax warm. And we think, okay, well, this is all God intended to do. Now, I I prayed for this, and he gave me this. Okay, guess I got to deal with that one. And so many settle for that. When God says, I would have given you this... But you stopped here instead of returning with the same importunity that got you this and getting all this. And everything he was doing here, he was expressing his inability. And so he went back a second time. Verse 35, then he returned and walked in the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and child opened his eyes Notice sixth, the wonder of the miracle. The wonder of the miracle. Verse number 35 again. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. After Elisha stretched himself upon the child the second time, we're told that he sneezed seven times, he opened his eyes. In this we see how ready God was to respond to the exercise of faith from the prophet Elisha. Elisha had no promise from God that this would happen. God didn't tell him, okay, if you do this, here's the expected outcome. He has no promise from God, but he was acting in complete faith in God to do the impossible, and God delivered on the impossible. It definitely makes prayer easy when there is a definite promise of God that we're clinging to. But there is a higher level of faith that is there for us to grab a hold of and trust in God without specific word from him. Elisha prayed and acted in faith, and the God of wonders opened the child's eyes and restored this child to life. Let this be an encouragement to you that when you go to God in prayer, you can have full confidence that whatever your need may be, we know that God can work. It doesn't matter what it is. God can work. James 1, verses 6 and 7 tells us how we're to ask of God in prayer. It says, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. When your faith is not constant, is not steadfast on God, and it's going back and forth, and well, maybe God can do it, maybe he can't. Don't expect anything. But when you're doing it as Jesus directed in Mark chapter 11, where he says, first of all, have faith in God. And then whatsoever things you desire, he says, when you ask, believe that you'll get them and you shall have them. Believe it and then expect it to happen. I cannot imagine Elisha's delight as he saw the hand of God work and restore this child's life. What joy there must have been as he calls his servant Gehazi in verses 36 and 37. Notice what we see. So the child sneezed seven times, opened his eyes. Verse 36, and he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her. When she was coming unto him, he said, Take up thy son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. The mother was too full of gratitude to even say a word. There's no recorded word from this mob. All she can do is fall at his feet. She took up her son, the Bible says, and went out, no doubt, to pour out her heart in thanksgiving to God, knowing how much this woman loved God. I'm sure that's what she went to do. The wonder of the miracle, and notice last, number seven, the meaning of the miracle. The meaning of the miracle. When we first read about this woman in the earlier stages of 2 Kings chapter 4, it was Elisha who was journeying by her as he was traveling to Shunem. But now it was the woman who was traveling to him. First, it was the woman who approached him as she, as we're told in verse number 8, constrained him over and over to come and to eat at her house. And in this instance, it was Elisha who befriends her as he sends his servant Gehazi to run and to meet her as she approaches him. Previously, God miraculously gave her a son and now the son is taken away. From a human perspective, it would have appeared that God was mocking, even ridiculing this woman by bringing death to her child, but there is something more that we can see here. God was showing this woman that in these two miracles, getting a son and then having that son restored to life, that God alone is the means of everything that we receive. God alone is the means of everything that we we receive. He is the author of every gift. And every perfect gift comes from him. He is the means of everything we receive and the one by whom everything is also maintained. Whether we realize it or not, every one of us are completely dependent upon God, not just for our lives to have a beginning, but for our lives to continue to exist. When we think about our salvation, it was completely the working of God and the very grace of God that we were saved. But God hasn't saved us through faith with the expectation that we must go and maintain what he has given us. He is the author of our faith, the Bible says, but he is also the finisher of our faith. He doesn't save us and then send us off like a little bird who just learned to fly. God is the one who maintains our salvation and keeps us saved for all eternity. I don't know about you, but knowing that when you believe in Jesus as your Savior, you are eternally secure in him, that is cause for eternal rejoicing, is it not? Satan does everything he can to keep that believer from rejoicing. And sadly, many believers don't live with the joy that they should have because they're not daily looking to God the way that they should be as the author, the beginner of their salvation, as well as the maintainer of their salvation. There's never a cause for a child of God to ever be discouraged or to ever lack joy. Are you going to be happy all the time? No. But happiness is contingent upon your present circumstances. Joy is contingent contingent upon your position in Jesus Christ, and that never changes if you're a child of God. Never changes. Your happiness is going to be like a roller coaster ride. You're going to be happy one moment, and then something's going to go wrong, and you're not going to be happy. Joy should be constant in the life of a believer because nothing separates you from God. Nothing changes the fact that you're a child of God because it's not resting upon how well you can hold on to him. It's resting upon how well he holds on to you and he never loosens his grip. Nothing changes that. Now Satan's going to do everything he can to keep you from rejoicing. He's going to be whispering in your ear telling you that you just blew it. And there are many Christians who are not living with the joy that they should have. There is never a cause For the child of God to be discouraged or to lack joy, however, we will remain discouraged unless we follow the example of what we see in this passage here. Pay attention to what this woman was doing. First, she recognized the entire circumstance as a testing of her faith, and she continued to trust in the Lord. And second, she remained active in her faith as she moved promptly, expecting God to do something. And third, she prepared herself for whatever she needed to do and she went on a long journey anticipating God to answer the request that she was going to make to the prophet Elijah. And fourth, she sought after the one who first made the promise to her. Go back to the one who's made his word true to you. And fifth, she clung to the original promise and she refused to believe that God had ceased to be gracious to her. And sixth, she persisted even when an unholy servant tried to pull her away. And seven, she continued to count on the power of God working through the prophet. Now, through all of this, we see that her faith was rewarded. As a child of God, don't be surprised when your faith is tested. God is going to stretch us, and that stretching hurts. No one is excited about the stretching. But he stretches us, and it's all done for the purpose of elevating our faith to a level that we've not previously seen. So that we can see God and see his hand work in a way that we haven't yet seen. And don't be discouraged when life doesn't seem to be going your way, but keep doing what you know God would have you to do where he currently has you. God has never given us a reason to stop trusting him day after day. If you've trusted in God for your eternal salvation, keep trusting in him, to do that which may even seem impossible. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the example and the reminder that we need here today. And Lord, if no one else got anything from this, Lord, I know that you've spoken to me so clearly. And Lord, I pray that you would help me and anyone else, Lord, that needs to be reminded of, of who you are, lord that all sufficient god of the universe who spoke the world into existence lord who has no limitations i pray lord that you would remind us that as we approach you there's never a need that is too great for you to meet and lord help us not to lack the faith or even to doubt in what you can do and lord help us to never settle for a partial blessing when there is a much rich and fuller blessing that you have ready to bestow upon us if we would just be persistent in our prayers. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage each and every one of us to learn the lessons that we've seen here, Lord, and to be diligent in our prayers and to approach you the right way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.